Hey all, on today's episode of Let Me Be Frank, we touch again on the coronavirus, which the WHO has declared a pandemic. We'll talk about the work of Catholic Charities, and then Bishop Frank will lead us through a Lenten check-in with Laetare Sunday coming up. But first, our show is brought to you by the Knights of Columbus Museum. Though you can't tour the museum during this time of health caution, you can always visit online. Go to KOFC Museum on the web or social media channels to enjoy a journey through history, art, and faith. Hey all, I'm Steve Lee. I'm the head of Veritas Catholic Network, and I'm here with Bishop Frank Caggiano on Let Me Be Frank. Steve, it's good to be with you again. Thanks. Thanks, Your Excellency. Yeah, it's good. It's uh, Challenging. crazy cir- circumstances. You know, lately it feels like we're living in a movie. You mm-hmm. have schools shutting down and countries like Italy and, and Israel that are locking down and quarantining themselves. Mm-hmm. Sports events getting canceled, you know, seasons getting canceled. It's, it, it feels like, right. it doesn't feel like real life. It's amazing what 10 days have done and how the world has drastically changed. I think many people here in our country did not really appreciate the severity of what others were, were undergoing. And now it is in our midst and we are facing probably the greatest medical challenge crisis since the flu pandemic at the beginning of the 20th century. This is a once in a century sort of event and is very frightening to, for many people. Those who are elderly, those who are sick, those who have a compromised immunity, those who have chronic illnesses, those who have children. I was at the supermarket not long ago and it's, I go early, 7 a.m. It opens, I'm there. <laughs> I do my shopping, out I go. Because right. shopping is not one of the things I prefer doing. And by 7.10, there were 12 people online. Wow. Which I have never seen. Because there is a growing sense of real desperation, fear, anxiety, even panic in some. Because we are, as you say, in completely uncharted territory for anyone perhaps who's alive today. Right. And, and so... I think in many ways, as we talk about this, you and I, and our listeners kind of reflect on it, one of the takeaways immediately is the frailty of both human life and the frailty of the society we form together. We take for granted both. And yet in many ways, in a time like this, which is of severe challenge, you recognize particularly the society we form, how delicately balanced it is and how so many people's lives can be affected by decisions that are meant to correct the, the contagion, but also have huge implications for work, for pay, for caring for children who are no longer in school, for transportation, for... It's, it's amazing how interrelated we are from a position of faith. Do we not say we're all members of the mystical body of Christ? So the body can't imagine telling the foot, get lost, I don't need you. Well, we live in a society where we've been saying that to each other for 25 years. I don't need you, I just need people who look like me, talk like me, agree with me. And now suddenly we realize that's not true, that we are all interrelated, aren't we? And that therefore we have to take ownership of each other's life and care for each other's life. So it is a very challenging, and the church and how we operate is so dramatically changing for the time being. Please God, not a long period of time, but it will be for a period of time that perhaps we even have an opportunity to review some of that for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's let's do that. So on Friday, you you released... Mm-hmm. the the people in in the diocese of Bridgeport right. from the obligation right. to attend Sunday right. Mass right see um, let's start with the basic premise that some of the challenges involved here are that the coronavirus experts tell us is ten times more infectious than influenza A or B and its mortality rate is significantly higher we're not exactly sure what percentage but it is higher. And the categories of individuals I discussed just a few moments ago are the ones most at risk. 
particularly the elderly, the sick, and those who have chronic illness. Okay, so when we look at the fact that someone can be asymptomatic and yet a carrier, so unbeknownst to him or her, you may be infecting a wife, a child, a neighbor, a mother, a father. Right. This is extraordinarily serious. And part of why Italy is in such a mess is it has been determined that the original ground zero, the first person, was asymptomatic for 27 days. So even in the protocols we have, he could conceivably have been quarantined for 14 days and afterwards still developed it. So what we operate out of as Christians is two things. First, this is a moment of trust and surrender to God. To ask prayerful intercession of the saints, most especially Our Lady, to care for those who cannot care for themselves, who are afflicted, or unbeknownst to them, need some guidance, divine guidance, to make sure that they don't become an agent of the contagion as well. And the second is that our responsibility to remain healthy is not first and foremost an obligation to ourselves, but an obligation to our neighbor. Yes. That this is an act of charity to wash your hands, to keep social distance. It's not because it's simply self-preservation, but I may be healthy and carrying the virus that I don't want to afflict to my elderly neighbor or to the postman who is near retirement or right. whatever else it may be that we, any other person we may meet. Right. So those are the premises. So you alluded to the fact that parish life, I had already instructed those who were in those categories most susceptible that they are not obliged to come to Mass. But what I did last week was lifted the obligation of Sunday worship for all the faithful of the diocese for last weekend, this weekend, and the weekend before Palm Sunday for a number of reasons. First and foremost, there are other categories of individuals who are deeply anxious about this and fearful. Yes. Who may have children or are caretakers for the elderly or the sick. So they need not feel obliged or even guilty of not coming to Mass under the pain of sin. The obligation has been lifted for everyone for their personal conscientious discernment. Plus, in light of the governor's mandate, that there should be no assemblies above 250 individuals. And I'm grateful to the governor that he did that, but I'm also grateful he granted a religious exemption. So places of worship are not bound to that, but people need to make prudent decisions when they come to Mass so that they keep distance. And while you can honor your neighbor in many ways, you need not touch your neighbor to do that. Right. So that's why there is no sign of peace, no sharing of the chalice, etc. So my thinking is for anyone who has any fear or any reason, even remotely, of contagion or, cont or, or more importantly, affecting and infecting others, please do stay home. And for those who feel they can come to Mass, come in the proper prudent way so that we can continue worship because we are who we are at Sunday Mass. So if civil authority absolutely mandates all assembly in a certain jurisdiction or town, then we will, we will comply. I told the pastors, you need to comply with civil authority because they are entrusted with the common good. Right. But absent that local mandate, I think we can still move forward prudently and allow others to remain home. Yeah. So, but uh, we're still obliged to um, keep the day holy so how, any ideas or how we can do that? Well, this could be a moment of grace to rediscover a notion of rest and recreation. We call it recreation. It's recreation in Christ. You know, in the old days, when I was a boy, a thousand years ago, <laughs> right, Sunday meal at two o'clock was the gathering of the family. And afterwards, we would play games. Dad would watch whatever he was watching. He loved baseball, so he'd watch baseball in the summer. And then we reconvene for coffee and dessert mm. to kind of wrap the day up. What a beautiful way to honor the Lord. Since we're all at home anyway, why would we not, not start doing that again? Yes. 
and open the day with, I would suggest to everyone, an equal time in prayer as you would have offered at Mass if you choose not to come to Mass for a legitimate reason. Reading the scriptures of the Sunday Mass, which you can find online. Um, perhaps researching where it is possible to watch Mass via the internet or on television. You can listen to it on Veritas Catholic Network too, perfect. on the radio. Absolutely perfect venue. And many of our parishes are arranging online streaming. Mm. So there are ways to both retain the connection to the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, offer private prayer in a particular way, and spend it as a family day together. Almost all our sports events are gone yeah. for the time being. So, and even if you want to just turn on Netflix as family, watch a movie that you could all watch and have some time together, I think that would honor the Lord tremendously, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps this could help people rediscover a great benefit we lost when we became so busy and so distracted and so overextended in our lives. Yes, so there is an obligation to do that regardless, but an opportunity in grace to perhaps discover a lost blessing. So that really is what's happening. And of course, schools, as you know, last week we closed all our schools. Right. And I understand that's a hardship for certain parents who are working and now have had to make a really difficult decision of either arranging daycare for which perhaps they don't have the money to pay or to stay at home to care for their children it is a huge sacrifice. But on the other hand, since it is incumbent on us to make sure our children are safe, the superintendent felt very strongly, and I agree with him, that it is best that they stay home for this immediate period, these next two weeks, so that we can do our best to try to contain the contagion as much as possible. Yeah. There's, I'm seeing um, on the media and on social media, there are people who are you know, poo-pooing all of this as overreaction mm -hmm. and panic, and we certainly shouldn't panic, but... <laughs> Some people are even saying that this is a, a partisan political, you know, event. Mm -hmm. And I'm just looking at it. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's not an alarmist. He's not partisan. He's one of the foremost experts on infectious disease in the world. And he's mm -hmm. saying it's going to get worse here before Without it gets doubt. better. Without a doubt. Some things to th consider. First of all, Dr. Fauci is, was born in Gravesend, Brooklyn, where I was born. Oh, wow. <laughs> went to Regis High School, where I went no. to high school. So he is really up on the list. My <laughs> list, he's way up there. Um, and as you say, he's preeminent. Yeah. But it's just logical. If the, it's unknown who carries the contagion, if you yourself may be infecting others by no choice of your own, then we really do not have a clear understanding of what the extent of contagion already exists and how much it can grow. So I personally believe that many people who come to that conclusion, whether personally or on social media, it's really a coping mechanism. Mm. It's the deep desire in all of our hearts to reassure ourselves and those around us that it will be okay. It can't be that bad. It couldn't possibly be that bad. Now, please, God, it is not that bad, but it would be imprudent and irresponsible to act as if that is going to be the truth. Right. It's not panic. It's prudence, like you right. said. The, the main insight that Jesus offers us in the command to love God above all things and love our neighbor as ourselves is not the commandments themselves, for they are the quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They are at the heart of of Jewish law. What is new is Jesus placing them together as a single commandment, for you cannot love God who doesn't need anything unless you love your neighbor in which the Lord dwells, and the definition of who my neighbor is. Right. It is everyone. So what we are doing is a mandate of charity which is a mandate of our baptism. It is not optional for anyone to absolve themselves, for whatever reason, 
to care enough for their neighbor to take the precautions, even to restrict their own freedom for their greater good. That is what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. And, you know, for me, by from what we're seeing out there, if I, if I catch the coronavirus, I'm still relatively young, healthy. Okay, it'll be, they say, a bad flu. But I have, you know, my wife at home of is course. immunocompromised. It's much more dangerous for her. So it's an act of charity. It's not like some members of society are more expendable than others. The elderly, for example. Exactly. It is deeply disturbing to me, some of the commentary. And again, I'm not, I don't wish to ascribe any malicious intent here. Right. Because we're all grasping in some ways. Of course. So there are some commentators who will say, really, for the general population, even if you contract the virus, it is not going to be a fatal episode. It will be discomforting, but chances are you'll recover, which may be true. However, the subtext to that is that there's a, sub, there's a group in our society who perhaps if they do die from it is the necessary price to pay for the larger society to survive. And that is unacceptable on every level for a person of faith. Or to put it another way, because you're elderly or sick or immune compromised, you are not disposable in this crisis for the sake of the larger group. They need our particular attention and care to be protected, for every human life is sacred. Every human life deserves respect and must be protected from conception to natural death. So while I understand some people are trying to calm people's tendency to panic and say, well, it's really only these people that are real. But all the more reason, that's the clarion call to say, these people need our help. Yes. All the more reason to do the things we're being told to do. Yeah. Pope Francis is telling us, in this crisis, do not forget the poor and the suffering. And the other group we should not forget are the healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, right. emergency medical technicians, firefighters, and police who are at the front lines because many times people call, they're panicked, they're un uncertain. A person comes with the best of intentions to try to care for them and unbeknownst to them becomes infected. They are the frontline missionaries of charity yeah. in this great, great pandemic we're facing. So they also need our support and they need our prayers and they need for us to care for them. Right? It's extremely important. Again, we're one family, we talked about that. So in a time of crisis, we all come together. So I think it's not helpful when people belittle all of this because you are dissuading people from the acts of charity that are, in my estimation, their, their obligation in a time of crisis, right? Yes. And the elderly certainly need our protection. And that's part of the reason, as I mentioned, why I lifted the obligation for mass because you may be healthy, but you may think twice about coming to mass to protect your wife, which is one of your highest responsibilities as her spouse and a person who loves her dearly and as a fellow Christian. Right. Or I take care of my mom. If my mom were alive, I may decide to do that. I think that's a, that is a beautiful act of charity. Right? Not yes. irresponsibility. Correct. It's just the opposite. Right. You have, you have um, we've, we've seen various degrees of um, action from bishops around the country. Hmm? And... Um, Again, reactions to those actions. Each bishop is the sh is responsible is the shepherd for their community, mm -hmm. and but you have people from outside those dioceses often criticizing. Oh, <sighs> Steve, I, I every letter I get, with rare exception, does not say I love everything about the church. I think is the best thing since last bread. <laughs> it's all about I don't like this. I don't like you. I don't like what you say. Right. <laughs> right. But even faithful Catholics. Oh, they're all faithful yeah. Catholics. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, they, these are good people. Right. It's just that they're venting and they're angry, whatever yes. it is. I think, well, that's social media. We've militarized social yeah. media. We've militarized our relationship with one another. So if I disagree with you or I hear something, I will not go to you first to ask for clarification. I will go online and condemn you, even though there is no reason to condemn you. Yeah. And once I do find the facts that I was wrong, I will never go on social media to apologize. Right. Right. So that is just 
That's the devil's playground. He's the great deceiver. He's the great divider. And we should be smart enough and faithful enough not to play by his rules, which could be a whole nother show one day yeah. if you want to talk about that. Right? But I think from our perspective, that should never dissuade us from doing what is right. Yeah. Right. The funny thing is, I, I hold this as a possible thesis that we are living in an age where the electronic platform, as I call it, is probably going to be seen historically as an epical shift in humanity, similar to the introduction of the printing press. Hmm. Shifted the entire human society. I think we're living through the same. And we are now trying to figure out how to use it in a thoughtful, human way and not in a destructive way. And until we get to that point, it is the wild, wild west. Yeah. Well, I hope we're thinking about how to work, use it in a thoughtful, human way because if we don't, it's just going to get worse. And, and, and just as an aside, to preview whenever we, have, whenever we have this conversation, I think I had it, uh, an incident in my car about a year and a half ago where I was driving back to Brooklyn and I was listening to a station on Sirius, which I will not mention, where everyone was literally screaming at each other. Mm. And it was political conversation. Well, it was, a, it was political shouting. <laughs> and I turned it off because I thought, I'm praying the rosary. Let me use this time constructively. <laughs> but then it struck me, I'm old enough to remember when that was not the norm. Yeah. My little great niece and great nephew will not have that reference. They're five and three. So isn't it our obligation for those of us who do remember and do believe in civility and dialogue, even when there's disagreement, or not to militarize social media, that we provide an oasis where they can have some referent of how this is the way it should be? Otherwise, that will be the new normal. That can't be the new normal. Yeah. It's so antithetical to Christianity. It can't be. But you do see it. And it's politicized in many different ways. Yeah. Well, that's why Veritas is on the air. That's why we're doing this show together. Absolutely. Because we want to change the tone, change the culture. You've become famous since we've started this show. Lord have mercy. <laughs> I pray that's not true. <laughs> um, but, you know, your point is in a time of crisis where we see ourselves now, uh, it's a call to love. Without a doubt. Yeah. For example, if one found themselves in a movie theater and there was no fire and someone screamed fire, you would be liable civilly and criminally. Right. Because you are not able to say anything you like, whenever you like, if people are harmed in the process. So I liken it to the need for society to mature enough to be able to assess when people speak in such a way that is truly harmful, that they're held accountable for it, even though that harm may not always be directly in front of your face in a physical way. So we are, in many ways, why I'm, I'm delighted and thankful to you for this opportunity is simply because it allows you and I and our listeners to create an alternative. Yes. An alternative of what, please God, others will do um, so that society can learn its way through this, what I think is an epical shift in how we operate. And to the extent that, for example, now people stay home because they can't come to Mass, and perhaps we can talk later on about how we're doing the rest, how the rest of the church is trying to deal with this coronavirus. But, but technology allows them to still be in contact with mass that's celebrated elsewhere. Yes. And gives resources online. Our students have an online platform for education. Religious education, is there's an online platform. So it can be used for tremendous good too. That's right, yeah. And at a time like this. Let's, let's talk about this some more on the other side of the break. We'll do. We'll take a quick break right now. We'll be back with Let Me Be Frank. Catholic Radio Works, 
And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. We've been talking about the coronavirus and it's the biggest topic out there. So we're just going to continue talking about it. Um, I wanted to ask you, Excellency, what can the church be doing right now uh, more actively for you know, to address this? Well, I think first and foremost, our principal obligation as Christians is to intercede for those in need. It's one of our principal obligations. We adore the Lord, we honor him, we worship him, but we also, as his children, ask. So first and foremost, everyone who's listening, every Christian, most especially every Catholic Christian, needs to intentionally pray. First of all, for those who have died, which number, I think, over 4,000 people. That number will grow. That, please God, the Lord in his mercy will grant them everlasting life and forgive whatever sins they may have committed in weakness through their life. Because I'm not sure many of them were, were ready yeah. to face this crisis that may have come out of nowhere. Right. So that is an essential obligation for us and a response for all of us. And also to pray for those who are sick, who must be frightened to death, those quarantined, who could be frightened to death whether or not tomorrow they will wake up with a sore throat or a fever. I mean, to live alone is just awful. So to pray for their consolation and for their healing and for their, if, if it is the fact that they will get sick for their recovery. So that would be the second piece to this puzzle. And then the third, I would suggest, is that we pray for one another that we become truly charitable and do what is asked of us in charity, which will require a conversion of heart for some, maybe most, in a world that it's all about me if this is going to be conquered, I have to live my life to say it's all about you and what's good for you and what protects you first. So prayer and intercession, absolutely everyone needs to do that intentionally for an end to this scourge. But the other thing we do as a church is we reach out in charity. So let's talk about individually and then let's talk about Catholic charities. Yes. Right? Individually. There are ways where we can prudently and in a prepared way reach out to those who are in need. So for example, if a neighbor is quarantined, nothing prevents us from sharing of our food or preparing a meal yeah. and leaving it right at the door right. and then calling the person and say, I left that at the door for you to eat. Yes. For no other reason, he, that person may have more food than they know what to do with. <laughs> But the fact that we have reached out to let them know someone cares is a gift beyond price when you are quarantined and alone. Yeah. So that charitable outreach, there it will be as different as we are different. But that it is possible is without a doubt. And we need to give consideration. And then of course we have Catholic charities, which as you know, perhaps many of our listeners may not know, is the largest private, provider of human services in the state of Connecticut. Amazing. It is. Yeah. Millions of meals, thousands of homeless people. Catholic Charities is headed by Mike Donahue, the executive director, who is new and competent, professional, committed, a man of faith, a man of mission, yes. who believes this mission. I met with him recently and he said they are doing everything possible to maintain all of the services of Catholic Charities during this very difficult and challenging time. But recognizing a few things. First and foremost, all their, they have 1,200 volunteers wow. in their soup kitchens, dealing with the, with the elderly, with the homeless, in their early learning centers. It's tr that's a tremendous group of individuals. But Catholic Charities certainly wants to keep them safe. So we have the elderly who volunteer 
so generously and conscientiously. And those who are perhaps with manageable chronic disease like diabetes, mm -hmm. they are being told to stay home to make sure they're safe. And the regular provisions such as wearing gloves and disinfecting is now become the, the normal routine. Right. The good news is because we have lots of college students that are now home, supposedly learning online, <laughs> okay, which I'm sure they are yes. at midnight, 2 a.m., whenever they do their homework, <laughs> more and more are coming forward through social media. It's interesting, the positive side of, and saying they wanna help. Awesome. So they're taking the place of some of these older volunteers, and this is a great catechism of charity for them, right? So there's an innate, inherent goodness in human beings. And so, so that's a tremendous development going forward. And I would encourage young people who are listening to make themselves known to the extent that there is the need. Yes. So that those who are more susceptible can remain home safe. The work goes on. And for those who are in need, they should know that these centers are still open. They're all open. And running. And all functional. But again, we're being smart. So for example, for behavioral health, many psychologists are going to an online virtual platform that allows the same interaction without travel and without human contact. Yeah. It's not the ideal, but it allows the services to continue. At Thomas Merton, right, meals are still being given out, but they're being given out in such a way where they are more portable. Mm -hmm. So rather than have everyone eat in a very small contained area, they can take it outside, they could take it somewhere else where it's safer but the same meals are being provided. So we are, Catholic Charities does a phenomenal job to support families and young people and all those who are needy. And they are really responding in a very noble way to maintain all their services, but doing it in a smart, prudent, and prepared way. I'm very proud of them. Yeah, it's, <laughs> they're doing exactly what you said in the first segment, which is putting the faith to work, mm -hmm. loving, uh, others, but they need to adapt on the fly, which they're doing. I mean, Mike, yeah. uh, that's a big job, but he's, a, he's smart, capable, Absolutely, and he's, and, he's, and he's new. <laughs> so, I mean, to come into leadership at a time when you're the front line of the work of charity of the church in a time when we have so many challenges is not easy, but he is doing a great job to rise to the challenge. So... Uh, for those in need, there's um, there's a New Covenant Center in Stanford, uh, Thomas Merton in Norwalk. Thomas Merton is in Bridgeport. In Bridgeport. And then... Um, Morning Glory in Danbury. Okay. Provides direct aid, meal, meals, okay. food, provisions for the poor. Now, there is something else I want to remind our listeners. Part of what is completely unknown is the financial and economic dislocation that many people will experience because their work is interrupted or they need to make the choice to care for their children rather than go to work. A lot of our people are hourly workers, which means they rely on work to actually earn their keep. No hours, no work, no work, no pay. So my great fear, and it's unknown to me, is how many individuals now who are living, you know, basically paycheck to paycheck, have now fallen into a place where they will need help. Right. They may need a bridge with food or aid for the next two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, until we can get to some level of normalcy, whatever that is. So these services are actually needed in my opinion, more now than ever because they may actually be able to serve more than we normally do. Yeah. People ordinarily who would not ask for help may have to ask for help, and therefore we have to be there for them. Yeah, and that's this is just one aspect of what Catholic Charities does. They provide help for pregnant mothers and uh, immigrant assistance. And behavioral health for young people. Yes. Think of the anxieties that young people are facing, all of us. Yeah. It's tremendous, tremendous. The other implication that's still unclear to me is the impact on Catholic education. Because if you consider 
many families make tremendous sacrifice to pay tuitions for their young people to come to school, that money may become scarcer and scarcer depending on what the implications of this pandemic financially means for them. Right. That will put immense pressure on schools, many of which do not have the resources to be of help. Right. And then, of course, all of our fundraising efforts are, are going to be affected because people are worried about basic issues in their lives. Yes. But a lot of that charity helps all these people. So it's, it's in my mind, it is a picture that is not in any way, shape, or form clear. It will not be clear for a few months, perhaps. At least. And we need to really, again, as a family, we need to work together to make sure those who are going to be adversely affected are cared for the most. Yeah. You look at the greater situation and up close and you see the face of the person who is in need immediately. And then you take a step back and then you look at the community. And then you take another step back and you look at the mm -hmm. implication down the road for the schools, like you're saying. And, mm -hmm. oh boy, it's, a, it's it something is. else. Absolutely. The, the the parable or the scene, if I may put it this way, in the gospel that came to mind when I was praying earlier this morning was Jesus's relationship with the lepers. It's interesting. In the gospel, we hear the leper cries out to Jesus for healing. In the time of Jesus, lepers were ostracized. They were ostracized for many reasons. First, because they were considered ritually impure. So to be in contact with them made you ritually impure. Second, obviously lived experience, they were ill and those who were around them became ill. So both on a physical and religious basis, they were literally kicked out in the desert, on their own, in the outskirts, no contact. So this is my question. How was Jesus able to hear them? And the only answer I could come up with is Jesus went to them. Right. He purposely and intentionally broke the barrier so that when he went to them, he could hear and respond. Now, I share that with all of us today because this contagion could create the new lepers. Those individuals who we will ostracize because, after all, we can't deal with them, or they are the most susceptible and it's just the cost of a society, or lepers who are in isolation and therefore are just cut off completely, or whatever, or those who are sick. And being prudent and prepared does not mean you go rushing in to infect yourself, but we also should not ostracize them in thought, in prayer, or in presence in some way. We have to be able to let them know they're not left, they're not forgotten, and they're not alone. Because we would be guilty of a great sin if we just sat home and bunkered down and said, okay, I'm safe. Everybody else fend for yourself. Well, we talk about the works of charity. We can't do that. We simply cannot do that. Yes. So the Lord, in his own way, has prepared us for a, a situation such as this, as this because of his behavior, and he's asking us to do the same thing. Yeah. So, so it's a sobering thought. Again, we've taken so much for granted. Now perhaps we have to relearn what all of that means. Yeah, and, and to take the right, uh, the right frame of mind to it, right? Mm -hmm. he, one of my favorite things from uh, that he said from the gospel of john he said the world offers you tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world ah good cheer so let me ask you how can you be of good cheer with so much bad news with so much suffering with so much pain with so much fear and uncertainty i think even one of the most faithful among us could easily ask that question in a time like this. And it is an important question because it goes to the heart of hope. For recall, when we were baptized, three theological virtues were infused in us. 
faith, which I like to describe as the ability to see what the world cannot see. That in this Jesus of Nazareth, we see a divine son, a savior and redeemer, and we can give our allegiance to him in mind, heart, and will. Hope, which is the founded, reasonable, promised expectation to serve with the Lord forever in glory, to be one with him. It is the hope of heaven. That is the essence of hope, right? It's that desire. And charity, of course, is to live his life in the world because God is love. Now, why I say that is one of the fruits of hope is that glad cheer. It's what we call in the tradition joy, which is Laetari Sunday, isn't it? Yes, coming which up. Is coming up on Sunday. Right. Right? So you say to yourselves, we're going to dress in pink vestments or rose vestments, right. <laughs> whatever you want to call them, and we're going to celebrate Mass, and we're going to talk about joy, and you got, people say, you got to be kidding. In the middle of Lent, no less. In the middle of Lent, in the middle of a crisis, you got to be kidding. Yeah. Right. Okay. Or as, or as a dear friend of mine used to say, whatever you're drinking, I want twice as much now. <laughs> um, but let's recall what joy really is. Because in our world, we confuse joy and happiness. Hmm. Happiness is contentment that the circumstances in my life now are where they're supposed to be. So happy, Bishop Frank happy, was when mom was alive and we just finished a huge pranzo and I was sitting on the sofa thinking about dessert. And if please God, I fell asleep with a little nap, that was <laughs> happiness. <laughs> the difficulty is it doesn't last. Right. By definition, it doesn't last because circumstances change and now suddenly something is not of my liking. So Jesus doesn't promise us happiness. In fact, anyone who reads the gospel knows that is not our destiny. He was not happy dying on the cross, having nails beaten into his hands and his feet to be lashed and to be mocked. That was not a happy event. However, joy is different. Giuliani of Norwich puts it this way. All things shall be well, and all matters of things shall be well. T.S. Eliot kind of adds, in the ground of our beseeching. That is a brilliant definition of joy. Mm. It is that deep-seated awareness that despite the challenges, sufferings, and pain, that we are in the hands of a God who once he takes us into his hands will never let go. That no matter what challenge we face in the moment, that things will be okay, for his love has conquered all things. And that he will take us into a glory of a life that we could not even begin to imagine. St. Thomas speaks of heaven as an eternal, ever more deeply falling in love with God. Could you imagine what that is going to be like with our own self-identity? So joy is the gift that's given to every Christian who hopes, hopes that the Savior he or she believes in can be trusted to fulfill what he promised and is along the way with us in every moment of every day. So if, if it is the last moments of our life as we're dying, if it's we're sitting in isolation in quarantine, if we're in a hospital bed struggling with this disease, if we're worrying about in the end how I'm gonna pay my bills because I'm not working for the next two or three or four weeks, it doesn't take the suffering away, but it gives a sense that no matter how we work this through, that God will see us to the end. He will see us to the promise. He will give us the glory that is our destiny as his children in Christ. So, Laetari Sunday, in my estimation, this year, we need it more than ever. Yeah. Because of everything we're going through and the great suffering that people are dealing with. This is not a, a time to, to say, you know, we're going to give up hope. 
all the more to hope more and all the more to have this gift of joy in our midst. Yeah, and that's the... What you just said kind of puts into perspective and Paul writing to the Colossians, let the peace of Christ reign in your heart. That's what it is. Absolutely. A man who was totally acquainted with suffering. Yes. And also a man who, please God, please Lord, if I make it to heaven, I hope I will. (laughs) Um, He's one of the few I would want to first go and meet because I have such tremendous admiration and hope in my own small, limited way try to follow his example. Because you talk about a man who relived a sense of humility, had his entire life changed by Jesus. So in real humility, have to give up all that he thought would get him to heaven to save him. Yeah. And to be able to suffer and be afflicted and always keep his eyes fixed on Jesus. That beautiful movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ. Did Mm -hmm. you see it? I haven't yet. Oh, you must. You must. Because... I'm not sure it's quite historically correct, but it depicts the friendship of St. Paul and St. Luke. Yes. And the persecution of the early church. And my takeaway from that is, you know, we romanticize the gospels. So when you go to the Holy Land, you see these places, you read the gospels differently. When you see Jesus of Nazareth, when you see Paul, apostle of Christ, you don't as much romanticize it. You know, these are real, Paul was a real man Mm -hmm. with real struggles and yet was courageous and faithful and tenacious and bold and courageous and in your face when he had to be because his allegiance was only to Christ. What a tremendous inspiration that is. Sometimes, even myself, when I sit there and say, well, what am I going to do? Sometimes I I say, well, what would Paul have done? Yeah. So go do it, Frank. I mean, it's obvious <laughs> what Paul would have done. So what are you worried about? <laughs> Same idea. Yeah. We have to, you mentioned this uh, in an earlier episode, and I agree. We have to come back and talk more about Paul and Peter. Uh, in a oh, and Peter. Oh, without a doubt. Let's do a show on each. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's... Yeah, there's enough to talk about about each guy. Oh, without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. Okay. I want to... Um, since you mentioned Laetare Sunday, though, I just want to go back to it quickly and just, you know, traditionally, why do we take a Sunday in the middle of Lent, this penitential season, to be, you know, joyful? And mm-hmm. besides mm-hmm. that, priests can wear cool rose colored vests. Rose colored. <laughs> yeah, right. it's cool because you're not wearing them. <laughs> <laughs> um, my sense is that Lent uh, in the former age, before the renewals of the Vatican Council, of which I have only a dim memory, were quite penitential Mm. and quite disciplined. My recollection was that there was no consumption of meat in the days of Lent. And the penitential practices were fairly disciplined, almost severe. So in a sense, It is living what we talked about, the transfiguration moment, for all of us in the midst of it, roughly in the center of the, to give hope. We we are going somewhere, Mm -hmm. which will require tremendous sacrifice and tremendous joy. So it's kind of to encourage halfway through to not slacken off, not weaken. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal and where we're going. So for us, it loses some of its potency to the extent that the disciplines are not severe. But the message remains the same. Keep our eyes fixed because our eyes are fixed on Christ, the empty tomb, heaven, where joy will be our life for all eternity. Yeah. It actually comes from the opening antiphon of Mass, okay, which speaks of joy. So in that sense, it's maybe we need it now more than ever because of all of the issues we're dealing with. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I like how you said it's the, the transfiguration moment because it's also here comes Holy Week, here comes the real, the real deal. So mm-hmm. here's some reassurance mm-hmm. before you get there. So one of the things we should ask ourselves, we're just about halfway through, so what have we done with the first half? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have we remained faithful to what we asked, what we, we 
said to the Lord we would do. And I'll always, I'm a broken record. If you say, well, no, not quite, okay. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off. We have another half, keep going. Keep going because this time could be fruitful. See, God doesn't need quantity of time. God needs an openness to the quality of time. Mm -hmm. If there's a, a moment, even a single moment in time, when you and I truly open our hearts, then the floodgate that will fill us is beyond imagining. 40 days gives us a long time to reach those moments. So if we're halfway done, then use the other half, this coming half. The other thing is prepare for the week before Holy Week and Holy Week. Because as you know, the tradition prior to the reform was Passion Sunday was the fifth Sunday of Lent, and Palm Sunday was the, the Sunday prior to Easter. And in the reform, they were combined. But we still have the practice in the sacramentary that allows us to cover sacred images in purple from the fifth Sunday of Lent on. So they still kept the practice of doing that. And I very much like that practice because again, it focuses your attention even more on the goal, which is the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, I think those two weeks are very important for our spiritual life. So we have another week to prepare. And perhaps, despite all the disciplines we've already adopted, that could be a moment where to add to it or to shift and do something else that more focuses us on prayer and almsgiving and fasting in preparation for the Paschal Mystery. Yeah. Okay, a lot to ponder on the break, but yep. we're going to take a break, and then we'll come back with some questions. Great. A lot of people listen to Catholic Radio and get great information to help build their faith and support their faith. But there are also people out there who haven't yet built a relationship with God, and Catholic Radio reaches them wherever they are. It evangelizes in a way like no other medium, and that's just one of the many reasons why Catholic Radio is so important. Okay, we're back. Your Excellency, we have some questions from listeners, as always. Easy ones, yes? Oh, yeah, of, of course. <laughs> Only easy ones. Uh, let's see. Let's start with um, David. He's writing from Middle Village, Queens. He wrote, I have absolutely loved listening to your show. I'm a fellow New Yorker and alumnus of Regis High School. Wow. <laughs> so I would like to ask you about devotions. In addition to Eucharistic adoration and reading of scripture, what devotions do you most recommend for growing in the spiritual life? And are there particular saints that you turn to for their intercession? I think the answer to the question is connected insofar as the devotion that I very much uh, find great sol solace and satisfaction out of are novenas and to some of my patron saints. Now you may say, which of those? Well, of course, she who tops the list is Our Lady, always. I remember being in Rome for the Immaculate Conception at the Dodici Apostoli, across from the Dodici Apostoli, which was the restaurant, was the church of the Dodici Apostoli, where Philip and James are buried. And they have a novena, nine days, sung Vespers with homily. It was magnificent. Wow. All the five years, Every night, there I was with a whole bunch of the priests. Uh, St. Joseph is one of my great patrons. It's my middle name. And it's a great devotion to our Holy Father. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, someone gave me the statue of the sleeping Joseph. Yes. In trusting the church, right? Trusting God's people. And of course, my other patrons are Anthony and Francis. Anthony, my mother, had great devotion to. And Francis is my patron by name. So, novenas to them. Although someone just gave me the breastplate of St. Patrick oh. and asked me for nine days to pray the entire prayer, which is actually a very lengthy prayer, which I've great, got great satisfaction, solace out of it, and great strength out of it. So, novenas to patron saints, and those are my patron saints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We love, uh, 
I mean, all those saints that you're talking about, of course, but St. Joseph, particularly in our family recently, has really been prominent. I mean, he's just awesome. Guardian of, of, of the, the whole church. Yeah. And the whole church. Yes. Right? Exactly. So I was delighted when the Pope included his name in all of the Eucharistic mm. prayers because he is so quiet, he's sometimes forgotten. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's also a good example. Mm -hmm. Okay, second uh, question. What do you make of the popularity of the traditional Latin mass, particularly among younger Catholics? Great question, for which I will plead not being an expert, but I can give you my sense. Um, not growing up myself with the Latin mass, at least to my memory, mm -hmm. I find it, at first, I found it a bit odd that many young people were attracted to it until in the course of ministry and reflection, I began to think more deeply about the dynamics involved in worship. So when we come to Mass, we are uniting ourselves to the sacrifice of Christ. So what are we uniting? Mind, heart, and our will. We're offering it all in thanksgiving. Now, having said that, what I began to intuit and what I'd like to suggest as an answer to the question is that in the last 40 years, we have, for a variety of reasons, emphasized the mind, but not necessarily the heart. We have emphasized the conveying of the truth and my intellectual understanding of what's going on, but not necessarily my desire and need to offer my heart to Christ. And how do you do that? It's when it is enticed, when it is cajoled, when it is opened, and that's beauty's task. Beauty attracts you. So you see someone, right? When you first met your wife, you saw someone who was beautiful to you and captured your heart. It wasn't an intellectual enterprise. Yeah. Then afterwards you asked intellectual questions. So why do I say that in reference to the Latin Mass is because the Latin Mass, when it is prayed beautifully, has a tremendous affective, heart-based invitation for people to give of themselves. So people will say it is beautiful, it is reverent, it is transcendent, it is quiet, there's silence, there's meditation, chant allows you to meditate. In my, in my view of things, that is all engaging the beautiful in a way that allows you to offer yourself in the worship, even though you are not participating oftentimes in the same active way as you do in the Novus Ordo, by reciting the things and the prayers and singing the hymns, but that's another form of participation. So I think young people in a very sterile world are looking for their hearts to be engaged. And I think the Latin Mass is doing that. Yeah, it's otherworldly. Exactly. You know. Now, what young people need to realize is 50 and 60 years ago, when Latin Mass was the norm, most of the time it was not celebrated that way. Mm. It was celebrated very poorly, almost pedestrian. Uh, it, it was the joke of the 18-minute Sunday Mass hmm. because the, the priest would literally pray it on his own. But because it's now the exception to the rule, those who do it are really attentive. Yeah. Now, that's the reproach to those of us who celebrate the Novus Ordo. We should be doing the same thing at every celebration of Mass. Should be reverent, should be beautiful, should be deliberative, should be participative, yes, in both silence and active participation. And it should be intellectually stimulating. But I will tell you this, and this may be controversial, but let me be frank. <laughs> when Kara comes up with a, a statement that the most important part of the Mass for the majority of Catholics is the homily, we are missing something. That's right. It's the consecration and the reception of the body and blood, soul, and divinity should be the high point of the Mass. Amen. And in my mind, that is over-intellectualizing it and not engaging the heart in the proper way. Hmm. So the traditional Latin Mass is reminding us of the need in the Novus Ordo to be able to engage mind, heart, and will. Ita misa est, go do something now that you receive all three. Great. 
we have uh, we have a bunch more questions, but we're running out of time. Um, so, by the way, you said you know my wife when I saw her saw her beauty first, and then the intellect kicked. Was in. that wrong? No, you're correct. I was just trying to think of what she possibly she didn't see the beauty, or she didn't kick in her intellect. <laughs> well, she's it a must great the good. woman. Yes, she was being good. <laughs> All right. So if you have questions for Bishop Frank. Send them in via social media or email questions at veritascatholic.com. Um, that's a wrap for this week. Big thanks to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum in New Haven. Listeners who are looking for some quality Catholic content on the web or social media, type KOFC Museum and give it a like or a follow. Also find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're there too, Veritas Catholic Network. Thank you so much, Your Excellency. Thank you, Steve. God bless you. God bless you. Would you give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord our God, send your Holy Spirit upon us in this very challenging and frightening time. Grant healing to those who are sick, consolation to those who are fearful, and strength to our hands, that as your family in this world, we may rise to the challenges before us with confident hope that you will never abandon us and help us to see healing, recovery, and new life in Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. And may Almighty God bless us, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Thanks. Thanks.